Hello friends, Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025, and the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Erie Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12 through 15, 2025. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. In today's episode, we're addressing a question we often hear. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Now imagine asking that question on the evening news. Saying there's only one way to heaven offends our postmodern world. But to answer this important question, we'll look to Scripture where we will see a question that is far more basic and why it is the better place to begin. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. I uh, struggle to try to figure out a joke to begin with today. That's kind of the standard way of doing things, but uh, so I thought I, I, I found one. I thought, well, maybe I'll start with this because it, it, uh, it kind of relates to what we'll be talking about. Brother Bob uh, dies, and he goes to the pearly gates, and he's standing there in front of St. Peter. St. Peter says, okay, Bob, here's the way it works. Uh, you need 100 points to be able to get in to uh, pass through the gates. And, and uh, Bob says, well, okay, let's start. And uh, Peter says, well, what have you done that can earn you some points? Bob says, well, I've, I've been faithful all my life to my wife and my family. Peter says, that is outstanding. That's worth two points. Bob says, two points. Well, I go to church every week, and I tithe, and I serve. Peter says, that is fantastic, Bob. That's worth one point. Bob's getting nervous, and he starts you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel, says, well, I volunteered at the soup kitchen you know, uh, on the holidays. Peter says, that's great, Bob. That's worth another point. Bob says, you've you got to be kidding. There's no way I'm going to get in except by the grace of God. Peter says, that's worth 100 points. (laughs) You know, I heard a statistic recently that I've not forgotten. Two out of every three people alive today will never hear the name of Jesus. Which begs a question. Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Some time ago, I read an article in USA Today that had a series, they did kind of a series of articles on people who had changed from one religion to another. They grew up one way, and then for whatever reason, they changed. And they had a number of different ones that were interesting, but the most fascinating to me was a young woman who grew up Christian and uh, became a Jew. And when asked why, this woman said that her childhood experiences in Christian churches left her unable, quote, to reconcile the idea that their way was the only way to heaven. There were too many people left out. I was very disillusioned. She said she liked Judaism because, quote, I like that Judaism has place for intellectual discussion, opinions, and questions. There is no one right answer. You know, of all the questions that people ask us as Christians, in fact, of all the accusations that we deal with in life as we interact with people that don't know the Lord, I think this is one that is probably the most significant. Is Jesus Christ really the only way to heaven? What about other religions? I mean, To say that Christ is the only way, you've got two out of three people never even hear the name of Jesus. That seems a little, first of all, it seems a little arrogant 
to say that he's the only way. And second, it seems a little unfair to say that only one-third of the people even have the opportunity to place their faith in Christ. And the skeptics are not just those outside the church. Among various Lutherans, 67% say that they agree with this statement. Quote, although there are many religions in the world, most of them lead to the same God. U.S. News and World Report poll showed that those who call themselves Christian in the United States, only 19% believe that Christianity is the only true religion. You see, this ranks as a good question because people commonly assume that Jesus is just one of many paths, sort of like all trails lead to the same summit. It doesn't matter which side of the mountain you start on. Just start climbing and you'll make it to the top. And we all get to the top and we'll find out that our version of God is just the same God. It's kind of like a restaurant row. You just take your pick. Anything along this highway is going to satisfy your hunger. But if you think about it, just outside of the Bible, we want to look at what the Bible says about this topic, but just outside of the Bible, let's just use logic for a moment. All religions can't be true because Christianity contradicts all others. We can't say that Jesus is just one of many ways when Jesus contradicts the other ways. Uh, Some will say, well, Buddhism follows Buddha, Islam follows Muhammad, Christianity follows Christ. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that the Buddhists' Eightfold Path and the Hindus' Karma and that the Muslims' Code of Laws all have a different way of earning their approval with the God that they're not real sure who he is. Jesus teaches not only can you know who God is, but he gives the bad news that you can't come to God by any rules but in fact that your works offend him. What are you going to do with your sin? You see, the real issue, that the real question here is not, is Jesus the only way to heaven? That's a legitimate question. But the real question is, is God holy? Because if God is holy and he can't abide sin in his presence, what are you going to do with your sin? Brother Bob can add all the things that he's done in his life to his sin, but he still doesn't have enough points to get in. What are you going to do with your sin? If God is holy, how can we stand before a holy God as sinners and be blameless? Only one way to God offends our postmodern world. None of us are strangers to that fact. We have sought unity, we have sought tolerance. And we have sacrificed truth. Jesus said there's one way to God, but Hinduism denies that. Jesus says we can know God and all meaning comes from God. Buddhism denies that. Jesus claimed to be God's son. Well, Islam denies that. The New Testament says that we can know for sure that we're going to heaven. Agnosticism denies that. You see, Christianity can't be just one of many ways when Christianity contradicts all other ways. All ways can't be valid if one of the ways completely contradicts all the others. Now, I'd like you to look with me at Luke chapter 13. I'm going to look at a couple of passages this morning. The first will be from the 13th chapter of Luke. If you think about it, when Jesus gave the command to evangelize the world, Buddhism, Confucianism, and the polytheism of Egypt and Rome were already very well established. Jesus wasn't in a little bubble there in Israel and unaware of all that was going on. He was very much aware of the polytheism that he faced. Some people say, well, Christianity is only 2,000 years old, but the reality is that Christianity is just a continuation of God's plan that started all the way back from the the garden, or even before the foundation of the earth, but we see the first inklings of it in the garden when we're told that the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. You see, what are you going to do with your sin? That's the real issue. How are you going to stand before a God who is holy without your fig leaves? Adam and Eve, it ultimately has to come 
through the descendant of Eve, Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent by dying on the cross for our sins. Luke chapter 13, look down at verse 23. A couple of verses here. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And we tend to rush by those verses on our way to the parable, the story here that follows. And these verses can kind of get lost in the context. They're squeezed right in the middle of this chapter. Look at the question again. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus' answer is, strive to enter by the narrow door, for many will seek to enter and will not be able. You know, I read a quote that Gandhi said some time ago. Of course, you know, Gandhi was the foremost Hindu of his day. Listen to what he said. He said, the path of self-purification is hard and steep. To attain perfect purity, one has to become absolutely passion-free in thought, in speech, and in action. And I know that I have not yet in me that triple purity in spite of constant, ceaseless striving for it. That is why the world's praises fail to move me. Indeed, it very often stings me. It is a constant source of torture to me that I am separated from the one that I hold to be my life and being, and I know that it is because of my own sinfulness and wretchedness. You see, Gandhi knew the real issue. I think he chose the wrong solution, but he knew the real issue. What are you going to do with your sin? How can you stand before a God who was holy as a sinner? And even the best that he could do, he had no assurance for, his, for forgiveness of sins. Well, the Bible teaches that you can come to, to God and by a way that he has provided. That's because the book of life is not an autograph book of moral people. God doesn't ask us to sign his book because he's impressed with us. Instead, our names are in the book of life as a testimony to God's grace, not as a testimony to our own personal righteousness. Uh, you're in Luke 13. Now turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. And Romans is where we're going to spend the balance of our time this morning. And on your way, let me quote a verse that's probably familiar to you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we know that verse very well. It's a very common verse to, to be used in this topic, and it's certainly relevant. I took some time and looked at the original language of this verse, and the translators have done us a, a, a good job here by putting the in front of each one of those words, the way, the truth, the life, because it's in the original. All three have that article, the, in front of it. There's no mistake that Jesus is saying, I'm not one of many ways, I am the only way to the Father, and no one comes to him but through me. The statement is only arrogant if it's, if it's not true. But if it's true, then his statement is a statement of grace, because he is saying there is a way to the Father. You don't have to wonder how to get to God. I'm telling you how. There is a way, and I am the way. You know, Christianity didn't invent an exclusive way to God. The, uh, it's amazing when we look at the, um, you know, uh, United States singing God Bless America, and sometimes you ever want to just raise your hand and say, who's God? As we sing God Bless America, as we sing all these patriotic songs, and you go to Washington, D.C., and you see all this scripture etched in the granite up there, say, who's God? Is God this sort of empty vessel, this name God is this empty vessel and we get to fill and make it whatever we want? Or is the God that America blesses the God of the Bible? 
Because if he's the God of the Bible, then the Bible is very clear, very clear on who this God is. Not only that, how we come to know him and how we can have confidence that we can know God. Christianity did not invent uh, an exclusive way to God. Coming to God has always been exclusive. Think about the Old Testament. Before we look at Romans here, think about the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you look at chapter 15, it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So all the way back to Genesis, we're seeing, we see that the way you come to God is by grace through faith in him. Uh, David in Psalm 32 said the same thing. He said, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Again, by grace through faith. Abraham, it was before the law. David, it was during the law, both by grace through faith. Habakkuk, later uh, during the time of the, of the prophets and predicting the exile, in chapter 2, Habakkuk said that the righteous will live by faith. So you see, there's always been only one way to God. It's always been by grace through faith. And by grace through faith in the object of God's choosing. Now, the, that object, granted, has changed throughout God's plan. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was the object of, of faith was in the sacrificial system. They believe that I put my sacrifice on the altar and my sins are atoned for. But ultimately, as the book of Hebrews shows, that all of those sacrifices point forward to the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So you see, Christianity is not some new invention. It is the fulfillment of God's plan all through the Old Testament. Modern Judaism, on the other hand, is a, is a splinter group off of the true faith of the Hebrews of the Old Testament. Modern Judaism is not anywhere close to what, um, to what the Bible shows as the true Hebrew faith. Uh, you ask a Messianic Jew today and you see they're right in line with God's plan. Well, Romans chapter 3, look down at verse, let's see here. We're going to start at verse 20 and see if some of what we've been talking about doesn't just leap out at you. Paul writes, Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, if you have the New International Version, I think it says as an atoning sacrifice or as a sacrifice of atonement. God displayed publicly as a sacrifice of atonement that pleases him, that satisfies him. In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, now look at this here, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. What does that mean in plain English? Think of it like a credit card. When you go to the mall, and let's say you're going to buy a home stereo system, and you pull out your American Express there at the counter, and you sign your name, and you walk off with your new uh, home entertainment center, you haven't paid a dime for it. You don't actually pay for that until the bill comes due in the month, in you know several weeks, and then you pay for it. But you walk out of that owning it on credit. It's yours. It is as it is as much yours as if you had paid cash. But the bill doesn't really come due for a couple of weeks till it comes in the mail. It's the same way with righteousness credited to someone in the Old Testament. How did, you ever wonder how all the people in the Old Testament were saved if they didn't know Jesus? How could a person in the Old Testament, if Jesus truly is the only way to be saved, how could the people in the Old Testament be saved if they didn't know Jesus? Well, what we just read here in Romans 3 tells us that God credited their faith in the temporary system like a credit card, and Jesus paid the bill at the cross. 
So their righteousness was credited to them, and it was good. When they died, they were in paradise. Jesus paid the bill at the cross, and it was paid in full. So the point that I'm making here is simply that Christianity is, is not, it didn't invent the exclusive way to God. The way to God has always been exclusive, by grace through faith in the object of God's choice. Now, you're in Romans 3. Turn to Romans chapter 1, just a couple of chapters over. And let's look at another issue. If Jesus is the only way, okay, fine. What about all those people that never hear of Jesus today? Is God going to condemn them simply because they've never heard? That doesn't seem fair. You know, questions like this are legitimate, uh, if, as long as they're honest, but though sometimes I think a, the skeptics are looking for a way out. You know, if, well, if the heathen in Africa, I'm not sure why that, the person in Africa is always the heathen. There's, we've got plenty of them here in the United States. But if the heathen in Africa, you know, hasn't heard about Jesus, then somehow, and he gets to be saved, and somehow maybe I'm off the hook too. Somehow I get to f- slide in on a loophole. Um, I've discovered through many conversations that most people believe pretty much what they want to believe, regardless of what the Bible says. spoke with a lady one time years ago who wanted me to perform a wedding ceremony for her and her fiancé. And they come to, uh, I got together with them and began to talk with them, find out that the young man is not even a Christian. And she was, is. And I said, to her, I just sort of ignored him for a second. I said, why do you want to marry this guy? He's not even a Christian. She says, well, I, I prayed about it, and you know, I, I feel like it's okay. And I told her, you didn't even need to pray about it. It is not God's will. The Bible clearly says you are not to marry this man. Well, she didn't like that answer. But you don't even need if the If the word says it, then... Why do we try to think around what the Bible clearly says? There are reasons for God's rules. I was at a family gathering uh, years ago, riding in the truck with my grandfather, and we got on this very issue of the heathen in Africa. And I began to share with him what we're about to look at here in Romans 1 and and, and how the person who doesn't hear, if they don't respond to the revelation that God's given them, then they will be condemned. My grandfather said, oh, no. No, 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 you're reading that wrong. That, that's, not, that's not the way that is. God wouldn't do that. And my granddad's a big Matthew Henry fan, and so we got home, and I know that he had a set of Matthew Henry commentaries. Opened up what Matthew Henry says to Romans chapter 1. I say, here, granddad, look at this. And he goes, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to look at that. You see, it's right there, but we want to believe what we want to believe in spite of what the text says. And there are probably blind spots in my own life that that's true as well, and in yours. Which is why God gives us a spouse to point those things out. (laughs) Hey everyone, Wayne here. We have all heard about the missionary journeys of the great Apostle Paul, but there's nothing like seeing these biblical places for yourself. Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so many more places. How would you like to see all of these places for real? Well, you can. Registrations are well underway for my upcoming tour to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. There's still room for you to experience these places that will change the way you read the New Testament. I'm certain. Check out the video and complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. Which is why God gives us a spouse to point those things out. (laughs) My family and I went to Washington, D.C. years ago, and as we were making our way through the Smithsonian Institute, we came across a very interesting display in which we saw uh, a Bible that was there that had been all cut up and repasted together. It was what's called the Jefferson Bible. 
Have you heard of that, the Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson read his Bible with a razor blade, literally. He had several copies of the scriptures, and he would, he would read through it. And, of course, you know the time of the, our revolution, the time of Jefferson, was a very heightened time of the Enlightenment, where man's reason was just a cut above what the scripture said or at least scripture was really put under scrutiny. And Jefferson, a deist, read the Bible, and especially the Gospels, with a razor blade. And any time there was something that he didn't agree with, he literally would cut it out. And you don't even have to go to Washington to see this. Just just do a Google search for uh, the Jefferson Bible and look for images of it, and you'll see uh, you know, pages of the Gospels that have been literally sliced out with Jefferson's hand. You see, it's an error, whether it's Thomas Jefferson or the lady in my study who wants to marry an unbeliever, or the, my grandfather, or you and me. It's, it's a lie that we fall to that goes all the way back to the garden in which the serpent said, did God really say? And as a result, you know, we start thinking around God's word. Well, maybe it doesn't mean that. And we're hooked. And we bite the hook, and of course, uh, it destroys that part of our lives. Romans 1, look at verse 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Quoting again Habakkuk. The gospel. What is the gospel here in context? You know, I've asked the question several times, what are you going to do with your sin? Really, that's that's the crux uh, problem that the gospel serves to satisfy. If your sin is what separates you and God, then it's your sin that has to be removed so that you and God can have a relationship. That's the sin that's the problem. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. And if we believe, if we have faith in him, then our sin is removed and we can have a relationship with God. That's how we can stand, we as sinners can stand before a God who is holy. Not by obeying a set of rules, not by adding points to our sin, but by removing our sin altogether by placing it in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice he says to the Jew and also to the Greek. It's not that the Jew has his method of salvation and the Greek has his method of salvation and the Muslim has his method of salvation and the Mormon has his. No, there is one way to God and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he tells us why everyone needs to believe. He says, first of all, everyone needs to believe in the gospel and then he tells us why. Verse 18, for or because The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I want you to notice the perspective here in this verse because it's crucial. The Bible doesn't say why unbelievers are not saved, but rather why everyone is worthy of condemnation. You say, well, what's the difference? Think about it. You're looking at two different sides of the coin. The question isn't, why aren't they saved? The issue is, why are they lost? That is what Paul is trying to say. Notice God's wrath isn't revealed against ignorance. It isn't revealed against people who've never heard of Jesus. It's revealed against sinners. In other words, people don't die for lack of a doctor. People die because they're sick. God will not condemn people because they've never heard of Christ. He condemns them because they're sinners. I read not long ago about a group of students at SMU that took a computer course that was too hard, and all 12 of the students failed the class. And they complained. 
and the, uh, the school offered to let all of them take the class again free, and they, they said, no, we don't want to. We'd rather complain. And one of, one of, the, uh, one of the spokesmen for the, for the university says this. He says, that's how it is these days. You fail the class, you sue the school. And I thought, you know what, that's what it is like in our spiritual lives, too. We sin, and then we blame God for condemning us. We feel that it's our right to pass in spite of our failing performance. But the fact is that God is not obligated to forgive anyone's sin. He is only obligated to judge sin. And if he were to pick one person out of the billions who have ever lived and save them by his grace, it would have been an incredible testimony of his mercy. But he's done much more than that. He has provided a way not for just one person, but for any person to be saved through the means that he has provided by grace through faith in Jesus. The text says that mankind has suppressed the truth. Did you notice that in verse 18? They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness or by unrighteousness. And it's not that they didn't know the truth, but the truth that they knew, they rejected. And what did they know? Look at, let's keep looking here. Verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them. Or you could also translate it among them. Both work in the context. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but, be, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. And take a glance, if you're familiar with the context, at the verses that follow here, and you see the practical outworking of a heart that rejects the, pure, the, the simple revelation of God in creation. God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts and impurities that their bodies might be dishonored. And then look at the very end of the chapter, verse 32. Although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Talk about a relevant verse for our day and age, for, for our month. And yet look at the practical outworking of that. It's as if Thomas Jefferson and his razor blade are once again in power. The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence begins with these words, familiar words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. See, even a group of deists like Jefferson affirmed, because of creation, that there are some things that are self-evident truths under God. The design implies that there is a designer. When I was in seminary, uh, I had a friend named Igor. I met a fellow student. He, Igor was from the Ukraine back when it was still part of the Soviet Union. And obviously, under communism and atheism was the forced religion of everyone. So Igor grew up an atheist, didn't know any different, became a medical student, became a medical doctor, and as he was working with the human body, began to look at the human body and just marvel at the way it was put together. And he, he just began to scratch his head and he said, There's, this doesn't make sense how this just happened. There's such logic in the systems that all work the body together. And he really began to doubt his atheism. One day he was uh, driving through the countryside, and you know in Ukraine, as in most of Russia, it snows 13 months out of the year. <laughs> he was driving through the countryside with a friend of his, and he saw far in this field, this big, large, open field, he saw a snowman sitting in the middle of the field, just way in the distance. And he says, stop the car, stop the car. And his friend stopped the car, and he points out there, and he says, see that snowman? How did that get there? And his friend said, somebody built it. <laughs> he says, you're right. 
That didn't just happen. Somebody put it, put, it, put it there, and it's obvious somebody put it there. Igor said, there has to be more to uh, this divine design that I'm seeing in nature and the human body. And so Igor went to the library to try to find a Bible. Well, of course, this is communist Russia. There's no Bible. Instead, what he finds are the atheists who write against Scripture, and in doing so, they quote the Scripture, and he was more convinced by the Scripture than he was by the arguments against it, and he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. True story. And then he comes to Dallas Seminary, and now, as far as I know, Igor's back in Ukraine uh, heading up a ministry, I think a seminary, uh, theological studies there. But here's the point, and we see this played out in the scriptures as well. If somebody is given a little bit of revelation and responds positively to it, whether it's the creation or if we were to look further in Romans, Romans chapter 2 talks about the conscience that we violate, and we'll look at that here in just a second as well, or whether it's the word of God itself. If someone responds positively to the little bit of revelation that God gives them, he will give them more, and ultimately he will give them the gospel. We see this uh, shown in the scriptures. In the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, there's an Ethiopian and a Greek, both of whom were faithful to the little revelation that they had received, and God sent Philip and God sent Peter to tell them about Jesus. Paul, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, told the Greeks in Athens about the unknown God that they worshipped. And where did Paul begin? He began with creation and led them all the way to the gospel. On the other hand, if you don't respond to the revelation that you've been given, even if it's just a little bit, why would God give you more? Because with greater revelation comes greater condemnation. See, God is an act of mercy. For someone who receives a little bit of revelation and doesn't respond positively, why would God give you more so that you would have more condemnation? By rejecting it. We see this taught in Matthew 12 and 13. Remember in Matthew 12, Dr. Toussaint taught us that uh, Jesus recognized that the nation was going to reject him. And it's the whole uh, abomination of desolation. You're doing miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, if you, if you continue in this mindset, the offer of the kingdom is going to be pulled away from you all. And what does Jesus do in the very next chapter, chapter 13? He begins to teach in parables to hide the truth from those who weren't really wanting to see it. So you see, it's a pattern we see throughout Scripture. If a person is given a little bit of revelation and respond positively to it, God gives them more and ultimately the gospel. If a person doesn't respond positively, why would he give them more to give them greater condemnation? Let me take a moment and just ask you a personal question. Whether or not you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is there any truth in the Bible that you are suppressing? Something that you know you've read in the scripture that you know you need to do, but you're not. You keep putting it off. For some reason, you've, you've pulled out your razor blade and your quiet time and that part of the Bible you just have mentally cut out. Why would God give you more truth if that truth you're not obeying? I think there's a part of all of our lives that we can look at the scripture and say, you know what, I've been disregarding that. Why would I expect God to open his word to me more when the part that he has opened, I have not yet responded to positively? I read uh, an article in the Salt Lake City Tribune. This is so funny. This, there were some technicians that were installing a car stereo in a truck, and they found a bag of drugs in the customer's car under, under the seat. Well, they call the cops. The cops show up, and the policeman walks up to the owner of the truck and says, do you know why I was called? And the, the guy kind of shuffled and says, well, yeah, it's because of that bicycle I stole, isn't it? <laughs> the policeman said, yes, and... The man says, well, it's, it's that marijuana pipe I have in, hidden in my glove box, isn't it? And the policeman said, yes, and? 
And the guy couldn't remember anything else. And the policeman says, what about this bag of drugs you had under the seat? See, he, he forgot about that. The source that I read said, it's a good thing this guy had a bad memory or they could have been there all day. <laughs> See, this is a great example of your conscience condemning you. He showed up to get in trouble for one thing and once, once it opened up, or he said, all the, all the things I've done. Romans 1, now you're in Romans 1, look at Romans 2, verse 14. Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in our hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. You see, it's built into our conscience that even if we never had a Bible, we know certain things are wrong. We know intuitively that murder is wrong. We know intuitively that abusing a child or rape is wrong. Many of these things we know so intuitively that we make them laws in our land. And some of those things, as time goes on, we withdraw and they're no longer laws. But the fact is we all have a double standard that we violate. Think about it just as you're driving on the highway. You know, anybody driving faster than you is a maniac. Anybody driving slower than you is an idiot. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? We all have a double standard. The trouble, the trouble is the guy driving faster than you is thinking the same thing. Why is that idiot driving so slow? And you know what? That, that, that double standard translates into every area of our lives. And the point of saying that is what Paul is saying. We all violate our own conscience. We all violate our own standard. And his point in bringing that out here in this flow of the book of Romans is showing we all are worthy of condemnation. Whether it's the creation that, that declares that there is a creator or whether it is our conscience that condemns us for the sin that we know we shouldn't be doing, or whether it's the Word of God that clearly gives us a law that we decide, you know what, where's my razor blade? We all are worthy of condemnation. So when Jesus said these familiar words, he came up to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, if people didn't need to believe in Jesus to be saved, then the Great Commission would not have been these verses. The Great Commission would have been, Shh, don't tell anybody about me because if you do then they're culpable the best evangelistic method would be to say nothing so that all the people in the world could die and go to heaven on a loophole because they've never heard of Jesus the reality is Jesus said go make disciples of the nations because they are sinners, and they know they're sinners, and they will be condemned apart from the only way to be forgiven, and that is through me. Several years ago, there was a man named Leonardo Diaz doing some mountain climbing down in the Andes Mountains. They were trying to summit um, a volcano. Uh, it was called the Nevado del Ruiz down in the Andes. Well, the second day out, a major blizzard hits, and Diaz gets separated from his party. He's all alone. He runs out of food. The irony is he had a fully charged cell phone, but he, all his prepaid minutes were gone. <laughs> and he begins to realize, you know what, I'm going to die right here on the mountain with this fully charged cell phone. There's nobody I can call. Runs out of food, and he, just, he said he basically just sat there waiting to die. And the phone rang. You know who it was? It was a solicitor asking if he wanted to buy more minutes for his cell phone. 
true story. Well, and of course, he was saved. Now, how many times when solicitors call you, do you respond the way that Diaz responded? We look at solicitors as an irritation. In fact, one time, uh, one time a solicitor called me and said, you know, I'd like you to take a survey. And sometimes if I uh, am courageous enough, just to be honest, I'll share the gospel with them. And she says, you know, well, sir, may I ask you a question? And I said, sure, if I can ask you a question. And I said, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And I had one woman say to me, what does that have to do with my survey? <laughs> and I, I blew it. I, I blew it. I said, ma'am, what does your survey have to do with my evening? I, I, I just blew it. I told a friend of mine that I said that, and he said, you know what, Wayne, after you said that, you should have told him you were from the Mormon church. <laughs> But think about it. I mean, going through life before you knew Christ and someone shared the gospel with you, it was like somebody calling you in the middle of dinner asking you to buy Amway. You have no desire to hear that. In fact, take me off your list. That's what we usually tell solicitors. Take, take us off your list. Click. But when God brings you to a point where you realize that you're sitting on the mountain and there is no way for you to be rescued except for this one means of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ, then you are not only eager to take that call, you are eager. Sign me up. You're eager to accept that message. So is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Well, he is. But you know what? There's not only one way to hear of Jesus. Jesus is the only way, but there's not only one way to hear of Jesus. There are many ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out throughout the world. And there are many ways that people are being saved. So as we wind up here, let me just ask you this. First of all, on what basis are you expecting to get to heaven? On what basis are you expecting to get to heaven? If it's anything other than the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you, to make that decision today. And if you have already made that decision, let's flip the coin over and say, if the only way to heaven is through a person, that is Christ, we need to realize that the only way that people hear of Christ is through a person, and that's you. And that's me. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the Word of God and for the clarity of it. It's so easy to look at it with razor blade in hand and to say, you know, I don't like that part of the Bible. And yet we aren't being honest with ourselves when we do that. The Scripture gives us the truth, and honestly, it's good news that even though we're sinners and by all rights should be eternally separated from you because of our sin, we violate our consciences, we violate the obvious creation around us, and yet the means by which we can have a relationship with you is clearly laid out in the Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it is by grace through faith and the object of your choosing, and you have chosen your Son, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, the one who died on the cross and rose again on our behalf because of our justification. So, Father, we ask for any who are here today and have not made that decision, that they're still relying on church attendance or being a good family member or anything else to somehow earn salvation, that you would pull the slats out from under that false thinking and instead open their eyes to the beauty and the free gift that is Jesus Christ and that they would receive him and in so doing, receive forgiveness. And for the rest of us, Lord, who have already made that decision, help us remember that just as a person, Jesus, is the only way to heaven, so a person, us, 
is the only way someone may hear of that good news. Be with us today, Lord, and we pray again for those who are not here with us, for Dr. Toussaint and all who are enjoying their time, that you would bless them, keep them safe, and bring us all together again in your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell you what, let's, let's sing together before you walk out. Let's sing together. I know it's three after, but hey, I got started three after, so <laughs> let's just sing together. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're dismissed. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. It may seem easier to approach God's Word with a pair of scissors in hand, cutting out those parts that we don't like, but we're not being honest with ourselves when we do that. The Bible is clear. God is holy. Therefore, the only way we can have a relationship with God is by having our sins removed through faith in Christ, through accepting God's free gift of salvation. Next time, we're talking about the biblical ordinance of baptism. Now, I know that may seem like a pretty dull topic, but we're going to discover it is anything but boring. Your baptism into God's family may have been a splash at the time, but the ripple effects of baptism are still affecting your life today, and we'll see how. That's next on Live the Bible. And I'd also like to say if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people each week. To give a one-time or monthly donation, just go to livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. That's livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. Thanks so much and God bless.